Welcome to the School of the Word. This is Lesson 3 in our teaching series, a study of the Book of Acts with Paul's writings, titled Introduction to the Book of Acts, Part 3. Our teacher is Alan Smith. We do welcome you this morning as we're here in class, and uh, so wonderful to be in the house of the Lord with God's people as we jump into the Book of Acts again this morning, as I did about a two-year teaching on as the days of Noah. I feel like that the book of Acts is actually a continuation of that teaching because we're teaching the book of Acts in light of in the days of Noah. That's the way it's taught. That's the way they lived it. That was what was on their minds. So to teach as in the days of Noah going into the book of Acts is so appropriate for it lets us know how they were thinking, what they were thinking, what they were thinking upon. So we will begin the first book of Acts chapter 1 today, hopefully. Uh, In the book of Acts... I had a chart, which I'm going to hit quickly, uh, last week, and I discovered that I saw some people taking notes, and I thought, well, I'm going to, there's no way you can take notes on the chart. So um, in that chart, we'll get, we have plenty of, of them. So as we begin this book of Acts, this is lesson three and the introduction to part three. And if you will, as we go into this lesson, there's a few little things I'll hit here before we start the chart, and I'll explain it as we get into the chart here in just a moment. But I have a few things I want to hit first, and it's important at the day and the hour that we're living in that we understand there's two positions if we're living as in the days of Noah, well, the church was commissioned, of course, to go out and to take the gospel to the world. That's what we are commissioned to do. And a lot of times there's a position when we're undecided in our position, you have what we call the far right and the far left. If you don't know what that is, I'm not going to introduce you to it. You're of the most favored. (laughs) (laughs) So I'll not mess up your day. Most of us have been infected with it. But there's another position according to the scriptures, and that position is for those that remain silent. And so we got the far left and we got the far right. We got the days that we're living in and we're saying, like, I don't want nothing to do with none of them. So I'm just going to remain silent. Well, if we had a, a man who, is, you might like him and you might not, but he had a lot of truth to say. My name is Martin Luther King. He said, history will have to record that the greatest tragedy of this period of social transition was not the strike and clamor of the bad people, but the appalling silence of the good people. It's a good word. So we find ourselves, when we are a silent people, believe it or not, that's a place of undecision. You can say, well, I'm just, I don't believe with the right or the left or whatever, so I'm just going to stay silent. Well, silence is a place of actually undecision. So as we're exploring the book of Acts, one thing that you find is the apostles, the apostle Paul, and the Holy Spirit comes on the scene to push people to a place of decision. And upon the day that you got born again, you have been incited, you have been imposed upon by God himself to make decisions. And so as a believer following the Most High God, we learn that decision-making is part of our lifestyle. A discipled person is a person who makes a decision to follow Christ with a disciplined lifestyle. It's decision-making. So every morning you get up, you're making a decision. Every issue of life you come upon, you got to make a decision. And all of us, I, I don't know that we're any escape this. I, you've heard the phrase used, shoot, ready, aim, right? 
you've heard aim, ready, shoot, and then you've heard shoot, ready, aim. So you got two types of people, aim, ready, shoot, and then you got some to shoot, and we'll aim later, right? hoping it'll hit something. And I have found myself, I must be a little bit of a split personality because I found myself in life doing both. I have jumped too quickly and I have, I've waited if you, and when you aim, the problem with aiming, if you're deer hunting, is you has, have hesitation. Well, anytime you hesitate for a better shot, the shot's gone. Dan knows what I'm talking How many of you missed hesitating, Dan? It's the same way in things of the Spirit. Hesitation means a missed shot. When the Holy Spirit speaks to move, a decision has to be made and we move. A person cannot move with the Holy Spirit lest that person lives a lifestyle of making decisions. Decision is part of the character of a believer. Listen to this. We can make decisions, and we can make them quickly. Why? Because we know the truth. We know who we serve. We know who we're, we're following. So we find ourselves in this dilemma. And that's the reason I love this quote by Martin Luther King, Jr., he says, it's not the problem of those that are out here running our mouths. It's not the, you know, we can get out here and fuss about homosexuality and we can fuss about all of these things we like to fuss about. That's not the problem. We got plenty of fussers. We got very few doers doing something about what everybody's fussing about. And so we do not want to come under the delusion, if you will. I think we're doing a great work because we're the chief of fussers. We know how to fuss, we know how to holler, we know how to kick, we know how to point out everything that everybody's doing wrong. But you'll come under a delusion that you're hard at work. It's a delusion. If you want to state what's right or what's wrong with any sin, once, maybe twice is sufficient. If you find yourself voicing it a thousand, fifteen hundred times a week, you might be overdoing it just a little bit. There again, we got this a delusion that we come under. And Jesus even said to us that we would come under a delusion in the last days. And part of the delusion is thinking that you're doing something right because you're standing for something. God has not called us, I'm going to get shot on this one, to stand for his word. He's called us to live it. I give you a thousand people that will stand for the word of God and 99.9 of them have never read it. Because there's something wrong with the equation. Trust me, if Christians of the United States lived this book, we would not be in the mess we're in. We don't need more fussers. We need more doing. And that's what happens in the book of Acts. They're called unto living the gospel. Who was it that said, preach Christ and talk only if you have to? Right? Now, believe it or not, that's just not a cute little quote. That is the hardest thing you'll ever do in your life. You'll say, well, Alan, we got to stand for the gospel. The way you stand is you live your life for the gospel. That is a standing. If you love your wife or your spouse, or if you love them and you have to go around all the time telling them how much you love them, but all your actions speak the opposite, is that person going to be convinced that you love them? You've heard it said, which speaks the loudest action or words, right? That's not just another good saying, it's the truth. So we have to have a check as Christians. Am I going to stand for the truth with my life? I want to tell you something. It costs you a lot less to fuss for the truth than it does to live the truth. If you fuss, if you're a full-time fusser for the truth, you're full of pride. If you're a full-time liver of the truth, you're a humble individual because you can't live it full of pride. You can only live it through humility. Now, do I believe that God's called us to speak the truth? I do. 
but I selectively and on purpose used a redneck term that all of us should understand except less 2% of you. The redneck term fusser. A fusser is like a little feist dog. He'll run up and got a lot of bark to it. Right? You know what I'm talking about. That's a fusser. And it's just, just running its yap all the time. Listen, you really know you're a fusser if you get tired of hearing yourself fuss. Right. That's, that's a good giveaway right there. You might be a fusser if you hear yourself. And so I guess it sounds like my key of what I'm saying is about a fusser. The key is, are we living the life of Christ? Now, this is what happens as you go into the book of Acts. So as we enter this book of Acts here, again, the main character is Peter in the first 12 chapters. Paul, the last part of the book, chapters 2 through 28, is all, the whole book is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's released in Acts chapter 2. There again, the overview, you basically got Peter, the first part, then you basically got Paul in the second part because Paul comes on the scene, given all this different information. It's not different, I shouldn't use that term. He expands on the information that's been given to bring a greater level and depth, if you will, understanding. It is important to consider that the book of Acts is still being written because the Holy Spirit's at work. The book of Acts is the beginning of the church and is continuing until this very day. So we like to say that the book of Acts has not ceased. The book of Acts covers the first 33 years of the church and in the end, the full blindness, we call it, of the nation Israel. Now, I'm going to be speaking somewhat about replacement theology and I'm going to be speaking some on replacement theology. On it's some things that I'll say that you'll think, well, Alan is for replacement theology. Just so up front, I'm not an embracer of that doctrine of replacement theology. I want to mention some things so you can understand how they got it. That's all. I just want you to understand how did some people come up with this idea of replacement theology. And so it's not like it's, it's understandable if you fall into the trap of it. It's understandable when you think more highly of yourself than you ought. I'll try to quote a little Bible there. Okay. The book of Acts will close when the Holy Spirit is taken out of this present world. So we see that the Holy Spirit came in, Acts 2, but then we need to understand also that the Holy Spirit, there'll be a time that the Holy Spirit is taken out of this world. We'll get into all of that. Now, I have given you a paper there. I think, did I put that at the top? A proposed order of Paul's epistles. I did. I actually printed that last week. I was going to pass it out and I didn't get to it, so I thought I'd pass it out at the beginning. So if you look at your piece of paper there, I have this, the proposed order of Paul's epistles. Now, this is important. This is a study of the book of Acts with, I'll say, with the understanding of Paul's epistles that when they were written. Now, there's a reason that I say it like this. So you'll see that in your, and I did this so you wouldn't have to try to take these notes, but you could take them home with you. Now, I will say that the exact date of a lot of this, there, some people have a little different opinion, give or take a year or two or whatever, but it's generally, this is more of of where I'm thinking that it happens, but it just so happens that the rest of the theologians are real smart and they agree with me. That was a total joke. I hope you got that. We have Thessalonians, First, Second Thessalonians, Galatians. You saw, you see Paul's writings here, and if you'll notice, I've got Acts 18, Acts 18, Acts 19, Galatians, Acts 20. We have these different. Now, this is kind of important in that. Last week, and I'll hit it just a few verses today, last week, you say, Alan, why is this important? It's because the Apostle Paul got revelations. Now, he didn't get it all one lick, okay? He got revelations. That's what I introduced to you, the term last week of progressive revelation. 
and I was sided with the question. Well, Alan, is that, it was really good. Last week I was sided with, well, Alan, you know, the progressive term is used in a different light this day and time. And that was so true. That was so good. I thought, you know, I didn't consider that, but that is true. So this is not the progressive of form that they're using progressive today, even though it has kind of the same definition. This is what we call progressive revelation, which means that one truth builds upon the next truth, upon the next truth, upon the next truth. We actually say that all of the scriptures are progressive in revelation, Genesis being the beginning, revelation being the end. You progressively, there's truth unveiled and revealed down through the scriptures. But Paul, on a smaller scale, progressively got revelations in his writings. And so as he progresses through his writings, it's really kind of nice to understand. He's assuming some people had read Galatians before they encountered Ephesians. Are you with me? So since it's progressive in nature and it's passed around in nature to the churches, he writes in light of he already said something over here. Does that make sense? Or So you see how it progressive one stacks upon the other. Sometimes you'll say, well, Paul's not clear right here. Well, he was. He was clear, you know, five years prior back here in the writing that he had. So that's important as a student of the Word of God to understand that for that reason, an order of the revelations, that is more of a progressive order of how things are written. It would be like getting a driver's manual and the chapters were all mixed up. Right, they're, they're assuming you've read certain chapters, you have certain understanding. So as we approach the book of Acts, that's the reason I did, I do have that screen on your paper, correct? Okay. Then you get over into the, you can see, you see the little asterisk there. You see Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, uh, Timothy. Uh, down at the bottom, it says, indicates a book written in bonds or in prison. Some believe these books were written around uh, Acts 24, which would have been just a year earlier. You can sign and see my light green Acts. That's Acts 28. I tend to yield into Acts 28. But nonetheless, some believe it was maybe a little earlier. It doesn't make any difference because you're just talking about a, a year either way. And then when you get into the red after Acts, you got 1 Timothy, Titus, 2 Timothy. All of that's it's pretty close in those areas. And one reason you well, I'm not getting into it. There's reasons why you come up with that. So I put that in there as a kind of an idea of how the book Paul's writings are. That's the reason I titled it this way. It's a book of Acts with the writings of Paul inserted. So we start seeing that the book of Acts is a book. It's written, Apostle Paul's raised up. He starts inserting these books and these writings, this revelation in there. Here you got Peter and the 12. They're running around saying, repent, you killed the king. Then all of a sudden God raises up the chief of sinners, Apostle Paul. He catches him up into the third heaven. So he's there face to face. He gets some more information, he has to come and he brings his revelations to the council in Jerusalem and say, hey, I've been, I, hey, I'm one of y'all now. I've been called to the third heaven. Don't you know that was a zinger to believe? I've been called up to the third heaven, Jesus face to face. And he said, I've got this information. I got it put out here about the Gentiles and about the church, one new body, one new man. And Peter and those guys are scratching their head. And then, but the catch is this, Paul did the signs of an apostle. He healed the sick, right? He done, he done it all. So the guys in Jerusalem backed up and said, whoa, he's got the signs of an apostle. Now, the Jews require signs, but they go by signs. He did the signs of an apostle. So they knew what he was saying was of the Lord. So then we've got the writings of Paul that are inserted here, and it's more of a revelation to the Gentiles. In replacement theology, if replacement theology uses the writings of the apostle Paul, to make their case. 
In other words, God's just dealing with the Gentiles. God's just dealing with one new body, totally excluding all the promises that God made to Israel. Here's the problem. Once God says something, it's law. That's our problem. It's just, it's, you just got to deal with it. If God made a promise to you, the rest of the world's got to deal with it. It's the way it is. Because when God makes a promise, it turns into a law, which never changes. So God made certain promises to Israel in the Old Testament. When he made those promises, they were law as far as God's concerned. So will God not fulfill his law? God will always fulfill his law. We just got to deal with it. So when you're understanding the Word of God, how it unfolds, what's happening, you can see if you just took the writings of Paul and said that's the writings for today, some people will say this replacement theology. I'm going to show you how this works. Some people say that just after the book of Acts, which is 1 Timothy, Titus, 2 Timothy, just those three books are written to the church today. Now, I'm serious. Some people believe that. Just those three books, because it has the fulfillment of all of Paul's earlier writings. But Paul's earlier writings include the Jew first. We've got a problem. Replacement theology, we've got a problem, Houston. <laughs> okay? So you got to see the unfolding of it. You just got to see the progressive unfolding of Revelation truth. And you got to not break this rule. If God said it one time, it just is. You cannot break that rule. God doesn't ever break his own rule. He'll bring it to another conclusion that you didn't think of. The wages of sin's death. Got to be a spilling of blood, sacrifice of blood. God said it, it just is. So God said, okay, how am I going to work around this one? I'll have to do it myself. But he still fulfilled it. Now listen, don't take to task God not fulfilling something. Don't take him to task on that thing. You will leave with your hat in your hand. I promise you, God fulfills it. So when we understand this about the character of God and we get to the book of Acts and we see all this stuff coming in about the church and revelation of the grace of God and all this is taking place, all of a sudden somebody wants to say, well, okay, so God's not doing this anymore. Duh, buzzard goes off. We got our problem, Houston. God's already said it. And that's the reason when you get to Ephesians 3, he says, God said, here's how God handles it. He says, I got a secret that wasn't revealed. And the secret is, it's of the grace of God, the blood atonement of the cross of Christ which we now find ourselves living in what we call the day of grace. Now, the day of grace includes the gospel of the kingdom. You've got the gospel of the grace of God, which is basically Paul's writings inserted into the book of Acts, which the 12 apostles give testimony to because Paul had the signs of an apostle. Even though Paul brought another spin to it, this is to the Gentiles. And Paul, he really got out on a limb. One day he said, listen, guys, there's no difference in Jew or Gentile, bond or free. And they're like, what? You don't about dropping a bomb. And so they went back to it and said, Paul, don't you think you're going a little too far? We think they at least need to be circumcised. Give us a bone, Paul. <laughs> right? So that, it just tickles me. So Paul, he comes on to that scene. All right, you can see how people came up with replacement theology. The problem is, you see, here's where people come against dispensational teaching, and I will agree on this point. Some, trust me, not all back in the early days, but some said that God's not doing miracles today in dispensational teaching. It says the gifts are over. Well, what's the difference in saying the gifts are over and Israel's over? What's the difference? Those that are against dispensational teaching that say, the gifts are no longer in use or service at this time. Miracles are over. All of that's over. God's not doing that today. What's the difference in that? I just want to know what the difference is. What's the difference in it? 
There is no difference. Anytime you start heading down this avenue that God's not, take heed. Number one, God can do any blame thing he wants to, anytime he wants to, and if he wants to get around his word, he's got a way to do it. He'll just mess around and fulfill it, right? So what's going on here, you got the writings of Paul, replacement theology tends to just include mainly the writings of Paul, saying there's neither Jew nor Gentile, bond or free. Take that message. The one who toted it the most is the Catholic Church. Catholicism had to have replacement theology before Catholicism could exist. You know, the Pope's Peter, right? Called replacement theology <laughs> at its height, you see. See, at the Reformation, and bless Luther's heart, but they didn't necessarily drop their replacement theology. Now, some did in the old monk state, but still yet, for the most part, that part stayed the same. So we find ourselves at the Reformation, a lot of things changed and a lot of things stayed the same. In other words, Martin Luther, he, he wasn't looking, you know this story, he wasn't looking to change Catholicism. He's wanting to reform it. Well, listen, we're Protestants. We're the renegade people. I'm sorry to tell you, you are spiritually redneck. Come on, you just are. <laughs> we are the protesters. I just want you to see how this fits in to the book of Acts and why it's important. The asterisk is more or less the what was written in prison or in bonds. You see Acts 28, Colossians, all of that's probably, you know, he was in Rome. Still yet, he was in a house jail, you could say. But I put that there for you. And there again, if you look up different references, it can be all for a year or two. Different people have different aspects. And I think it's here. Well, I think it's there. In all honesty, it doesn't make that fine-tuning won't make a lot of difference. So Now, I also have given you this paper, which I went over last week. This is where I start in the book of Acts. I give you kind of the year that that is. I want you to start seeing the book of Acts like a chronological book. Uh, we got uh, the book, the year that it represents is to the right. You got the Holy Spirit descends somewhere around AD, uh, 33 AD. You're going down setting up the church. You're going down through there. The next change is Acts 4, uh, Philip at Samaria. You can see the dates writing when the Matthew's gospel was probably written, insert it there. Acts 10, first Gentile converted. Y'all remember that with Peter and the vision he had. Peter was being, it just so happens that Peter was being introduced to this idea of the Gentiles being part of this gospel of message of the kingdom. Now remember, the gospel, the grace of God at this point has never been mentioned. It's the gospel of the kingdom. And as you go down through the book of Acts, then through Paul's writings, you get a more broader explanation of the gospel of the kingdom. Not only is it a literal kingdom, it's a kingdom in your heart. But that's the revelations that come later. At this point, you can see that the 12... Acts 1 says, Jesus, when will you restore unto us the kingdom? Acts 1. They were looking for a literal kingdom to be restored. Well, as we get over in the book of Acts, which will last 30-some years, we get all these other writings that brings us the revelations and the understanding. Oh, there's another dimension to this earthly kingdom. It's a kingdom in your heart. It's just like if you use the, the Greek terminology plus with Hebrew terminology, you come up with this understanding that just because you're a Dallas Cowboy fan doesn't mean you're a Dallas Cowboy player. Oh, I'm looking at some Tampa Bay people here. So you got this thing about the gospel of the kingdom. You're part of the fan club. You can't be born again and not be in a fan club of Israel. It's impossible, totally impossible. Because part of the gospel being in your heart are the promises that God made to the nation Israel. He's faithfulness. 
It's impossible for the kingdom of God to be in you and you not be for East Taylorful Baptist Church. It's impossible because we're all on the same team. You got the kingdom in you. And since you got the kingdom in you, same way as the nation of Israel, totally impossible. And it just so happens when you root for your team, if the quarterback throws an interception, you still root for your team. When somebody drops the ball and fumbles and it's your team, you still root for your team. I don't advise it over football, but some take a knee to pray for their team. Total joke right there. You can laugh. My point is, when you have the kingdom of God in you, the enemy wants to take the kingdom of God. He can't necessarily take it out of your heart, but he sure can dirty it up enough you won't use it. You will not recognize it. Now, believe it or not, when somebody in our kingdom fails, it saddens me. Not that I don't think they're forgiven, for I do believe they're forgiven, but that makes me sad. Nobody in the kingdom can fail, but what it makes me sad. Nothing can happen to the nation Israel can be bombed, and it makes me sad. Why? Because it's a testimony that the kingdom of God's within me. Anybody in this congregation fails, it makes me sad. If we're in this congregation and our conversation is nothing but rooting for each other, the kingdom of God is failing in your heart. We're to root for everybody in here. You can say, well, Alan, that's a dumb idea. Root for them anyway because the kingdom of God's in you. How many has raised children? They've come up with the dumbest thing you've ever seen in your life. You say, bless your Lord. You did a good job. Why? Because your love was greater than what they were doing had to be successful. The love was greater. Then we find out it's not about their success. It's about me if I've got the love for the individual. God will constantly put you in situations of dumb stuff. And this past week, if you've said to yourself, well, I've just had it with stupid people, it's because you're not getting it. God's called you to love the stupid people to find out the greater stupid person is yourself. So I've given you this chronological order, the book of Acts here and the epistles. We will come to it. Here you get down to A.D., year 84, you got 1st, 2nd Thessalonians are written. You see that? So you got the book of Acts. I'm going to back up here just a little. All right, as we go into the chronological order, I don't see any of Paul's writings there, do you? I'm going to come down here. Uh-oh, there's 1st, 2nd. So Paul started writing his first epistle at A.D. 54. 20 years after the church started. Why is this important? Well, you start doing a little math here and there. I think, wow, you mean to tell me? How did the church get along without Paul's writings? It's because the apostles had 20 years to take the gospel of the kingdom to the Jewish nation to see if the bunch of buffooners would start believing that Jesus was the Messiah. God gave them a dedicated message for 20 years. And God said, well, they just aren't going to get it. So... I'm going to unveil a secret that I've had all the time. Israel was not blinded for that 20 years. God had not blinded them yet. They had refused it. God said they just aren't going to get it. Their pride and their arrogance has just overtaken them. So he said, God, he looked out over the portals of heaven and said, okay, I'm going to show my grace on these bunch of buffooners down there. I'm going to have to pick out the chief of sinners to show how big my grace is. And he looked down and said, well, there's a guy going around killing all these Christians. I believe I'll get him. I believe he's the chief center in Jerusalem. God picked the worst one, the big, and you think you've done something bad that God can't reach. When God picked the worst man in Jerusalem, and then Paul said, in me first has this grace been bestowed, because Paul knew he was the chief of sinners. He quoted that. 
So God picks out this Paul, full of pride, full of law, knew the Bible frontwards and backwards, but the word wasn't driving him and his pride was. So God said, he's about done. So God picked Paul, rode to Damascus, blinded, knocked him down. He said, Paul, why are you persecuting the church? You need to remember that phrase. He could say, Alan, Trevor, Steve, Ed, don't persecute my church. But God, you don't understand, they're a bunch of idiots. Alan, don't persecute my church. I died for them idiots, all of us. So to truly get hold of this message of the grace of God, it's over our heads. We can't get it. We have to accept it in our hearts. You cannot do it through great understanding because it does not make sense how God could love the Apostle Paul. But God said, he's my pick to carry my message. So then you have Paul. We're going to insert his writings. This chief sinner writes most of the New Testament. Anybody feel included yet? Apostle Paul, chief sinner, writes most of the book of, uh, of the New Testament. God has this message that my grace is bigger than any sin man has ever committed. I've had people say to me, and this one was in a prison ministry, said, but Alan, this guy, he's a murderer. Do you think that God can save him? I said, well, if he doesn't, he's got to apologize to Paul. Paul had a bunch of people murdered. We can't even get it. But when you get the kingdom in your heart, you start understanding when you say something, you just murdered somebody's character. You just murdered a friend. You just murdered. You say, I'm going to divorce my husband. I'm going to divorce my wife. You just murdered her. You say, well, they don't love me no more. Well, don't murder them. I'm putting this in the right context. So we see that God did this with the apostle Paul, raised up Paul. Paul said, well, in me first is this grace applied. That was a personal comment of Paul. The truth is, the whole book from Genesis to Revelation is under an umbrella of grace of God. It's the grace of God that any of us are here. I'm not taking out this overall covering of God's grace. The very fact we're even here in God's plan is His grace. But God said, I'm going to give you a situation on earth that you can maybe start grasping how much I love you and how much my grace is real. So we got this backdrop of God's kingdom with his nation Israel. God says, now I have a kingdom. All the time, God shows and tells for whatever reason it's his language. You'll create something so you can understand something you can't see. It's just the way God does stuff. So God cannot do away with the nation Israel because it's the reflection to teach us what we can't see about us in our heart. Israel's a show and tell so we can see us. How many times did God go to Israel and say, listen, Israel, I'm your God, just do our thing. Then Israel goes out and gets and brings in pagan gods. That's how many times? Well, don't poo-poo Israel. God did all that to say that's you. It's in your heart. When you start having grace and mercy on Israel, you can apply and will start applying grace and mercy upon your own life. I can prove it. I can't right now, but I'm going to tell you something. If you don't have grace and mercy for Israel, you have yet to understand how to apply it to your own life. You're under personal condemnation. Grace and mercy to Israel is a reflection, is a picture of you in your heart. So I've given you this chronological order. You can see, look at there, the book of Romans is written around A.D. 60, 25, 7 years after the birth of the church. And that's where Paul says, Romans 11, 11, has blindness in part happened to the nation Israel. But it's happened until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. So we can see this revelation of the blindness to Israel 25, 30 years after the fact of the church. So the writings that happened prior to that might not have that revelation of the blindness of Israel. 
And sometimes little, little shadows and things will crop up and say, yeah, right there it is. But it wasn't in understanding. It was hidden in prophetic manner. So anyways, we see all that's happening here. You get down to Acts 28, then you got the book of Luke written somewhere, you know, around 63 to 68. The book of Acts, I don't know if I've got it up there. Probably written, do I have when Acts was written? Yeah, 65. Luke was probably written around 63. I got 63, 68 because people, but I know Luke was written before Acts because he says in Acts 1, the former uh, three thieves did our right. So I know that the book of Acts was written before the book of Luke, but I know they actually weren't penned until 30 years after the fact. And all of that, if you'll stick with me, I hope that I can show you how those things are important on how we respond to Scripture. So we get to um, writings, then you got Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. You got those books, year AD 63. You see Paul's imprisonment at Rome, Acts 28. Second line from the bottom year, A.D. 63. We know that that's at the end of the book. You get the last chapter of the book of Acts, Acts 28. You get to that last chapter, we know that that's where Paul, you know, was imprisoned in Rome. He petitions Caesar. He goes on the boat riding. There's snake bit and there's shipwreck, you know, all that story. Then you get, he finally makes it to Rome. That's Acts 28. And we see Acts 28, 16 through 31. That's the end of the book. Somewhere around A.D. 63. Well, it's in that period that he writes probably Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. Because we know he was technically in bonds, if you will, or imprisoned in Rome. So when you read those books, you're like, you're like boy, this is, man, does he have, man, he's got passion, understanding. Yeah, he's in prison, already been through his former books. He's imprisoned, he's sitting there, and then he it gives him opportunity to write these. Then you have the book of Hebrews. People say, well, Alan, do you think Paul wrote Hebrews? There's no doubt in my mind he wrote Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is written to who? Hebrews. Hebrews, Jews. So the book of Hebrews is written in light of the Jews, Jewish believers, plus all of Paul's writings, wham, right in the book of Hebrews. If you're a Hebrew Jew in the tribulation period, trust me, they're going to say, let's go to the book of Hebrews. He says, you don't return to these things. You don't need to. Yada, 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 yada. So if you realize that the book of Hebrews is written for a Hebrew Jew in tribulation period, you're like, oh, oh, yeah. Well, there it is. But is the book of Hebrews written to me? Yes, because it includes all of that. Let's all stand. Lord Jesus, we love you, and I thank you for this day that you've made. I thank you for the revelation of your spirit, and Lord, everybody knows your deal. If there's anything I've said that's not of you, I pray it will fall to the ground. If anything that I say is of you, I pray it will be quickened to our spirits. Lord, our goal is that your people would understand your word, your New Testament, on what you've said, on how you said it, where you said it, and why you said it, so that we might be Christians, not tossed around to and fro. We might know your word. And because we know your word, you say that that will supernaturally create a courage and a boldness in, his, in your people. So, Lord, if anything's been said correctly and right, we should be more bold, more courageous. We should be more determined than ever to be a disciplined disciple of you and your word. Be with us the rest of this day is our prayer, O oh God, that you might be worshiped and glorified that we might be your people. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.